Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. The world as we know it is ruled by men. But when it comes to fiction, writers can choose what power structures they create and how they are depicted. Despite the free reign this allows authors, most simply replicate the patriarchy. When authors do step outside the familiar societal structures and present us with matriarchies, what do we see? Aristotle condemned societies that placed women in power, known then as gynecocracies, for threatening masculine supremacy. Since then, men have often used representations of matriarchies as a way to demonstrate that women are incapable of, or should not be trusted with, holding power. Thankfully, the tide is turning. Early feminist speculative fiction writers like Joanna Russ explored all-female worlds and paved the way for modern writers to explore more diverse power structures in their fiction as something more than just projected male anxiety. One such writer is Aliette de Bodard, who we are very pleased to welcome in joining us in a discussion of matriarchies in speculative fiction. Thank you so much for joining us, Aliette. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, um, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, my name is Aliette de Bodard. I'm an award-winning writer of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, I'm most known for the Suya Universe series, which is a Vietnamese-inflected space opera. Uh, and my latest book is Fireheart Tiger, which is a sapphic romantic fantasy set in, I guess you could call it a matriarchy. Awesome. And that is exactly why you are here to talk about matriarchies tonight. <laughs> so, first of all, are matriarchies only of use to us as a way to deconstruct or paradise the patriarchy? Well, I think, you know, um, there are their own things, right? And they are, um, they have historically existed. Uh, they are also very, um, um, there's been a lot of investment in mostly trying to hide that they've existed or make it so that they were those terrible dystopian places because, you know, God forbid that women ever be in charge of anything. Uh, but you can trace, for instance, um, the the Vietnamese society before the arrival of the Chinese, who col- who subsequently colonized Vietnam, uh, was very probably some kind of matriarchal and or matrilinear, and you could see it in you can't see it anymore in the recorded history, but you can see it in the fairy tales and the myths that are passed down, where it's very clear that. Um, women hold the power and that lineage is passed through the mother instead of being passed through the father. It's actually very interesting to look at the texts and go, you get those kind of, you know, archaeological remains within the text of, so there's a dragon, um, there's a dragon prince who marries the queen of the mountain, but she's the queen, right? He's just the prince. Uh, And to me, that's kind of really fascinating to see how it's been thoroughly erased because, the the received wisdom was that those things just couldn't possibly exist. 
Um, what are the common themes or structures of matriarchies as opposed to patriarchies? Are they set up any differently? I'm not sure. I think, I mean, the problem is that in fiction, you do see a lot of them. I mean, I was talking about real life, but in fiction, you do see a lot of them as being explicit deconstruction of patriarchies, right? Which kind of muddies the water because a lot of the values that they then center are set up as being opposite to patriarchies, uh, where they tend to be, okay, so you you have the slightly, what I refer to as a slightly dystopian matriarchy, which is where you just swap the genders around and instead of, you know, um, um, having men oppress everyone, it's now women who oppress everyone. Uh, and I guess the point, I'm not too sure there's a point other than, you know, show that oppression is not a gender-specific characteristic. Um, you also, but... I mean, to me, the more interesting ones are the ones where you have a more communal, supportive structure where families are more important and where there is um, there is more of a space for... Uh, I mean, all of this sounds terribly gender essentialist, and I think part of it's part of the problem that it's seen as being terribly gender essentialist. Uh, you have more space for children and... You know, the very fact that children are seen as something more associated with mothers than with father really tells a whole story there about, you know, who is seen to be doing what and under what circumstances and uh, the terms under which we're having this conversation. So I don't think it's intrinsic to a particular gender so much as these things are lacking currently in the conversations that we're having and this this lack is what we're seeing. Meg, you know, Aliette mentioned, um, you know, that power is not, or abuse of power is not necessarily a gendered thing. Didn't you read, um, was it Naomi Alderman's The Power um, that that looked at, you know, that that switched the whole kind of societies around and, and basically showed that women would do the same thing um, to oppress men if they were in a position of, of social superiority? Yeah, it does. And I think it appeals to, I guess, the dystopian fans, particularly because it's it's kind of like, well, if women were in charge, it would be just as shit. But I find that really fucking depressing. I think it's a, yeah. I mean, it strikes me as being a very huge cop out, right? We don't really yeah. have to do anything because, well, you know, if the roles were reversed, it'd be just as bad, which is kind of not the takeaway I'd want. <laughs> But also it's kind of depressing that we seem to only be able to imagine a different kind of power structure if women were kind of on top, as it were. You know, what what happens about potential, obviously this is an episode talking about matriarchies, but what if we imagined a patriarchal state that was not oppressive? I mean, that could yeah. be interesting as well. Well, or what if it wasn't tied to gender particularly, right? And I think yes. that there's all sorts there's all sorts of interesting things that could be done to check to keep um, abuses of power in check, right? We have some of them in place already. You know, if you compare, you know, for instance, the um, the makeup of a democracy in terms of power checks, right? It's very superior to having a well, you know, like 
um, the example I always take is the absolute monarchy of Louis the Fourteenth, where you know nobody really could say anything against the king, right? So I think that you have, I'm not saying it's perfect, right? Not by far, but you have all those balances and checks that were in there a while ago. And it's not a wild stretch to think that we could have something similar happening in other areas, social and um, uh, spiritual and in a bunch of other spheres that are not necessarily the political sphere. Although I, you know, the political sphere does need that as well. I'm not saying that we're perfect again, just that, you know, that's where we are now in time. Definitely. But I think also, I mean, this is what another reason, yet another reason that I love Ursula Le Guin. Um, you know, she called, you know, made that call um, when she was receiving an award a couple of years ago about actually trying to find the hope in speculative fiction. And I think sometimes when we do kind of play around with these new different ideas, or if we come up with matriarchies or any kind of different structure to society we're still seeing the negative and you know i am absolutely guilty of this because i am a cynic through and through yet i'm also an idealist and the part of me that's an idealist wants to see something hopeful and something that doesn't necessarily have to suck uh, and i know that power corrupts absolutely and all of that sort of thing but i do like to hope that it could be different I mean, to me, it does, right? The question is then what keeps it in check, right? Mm. I think that it's, um, let me put it that way. I'm a great believer in the goodness of mankind, but I'm also a great believer in the fact that, you know, we're also capable of terrible evil, right? And it's mostly a question of what we choose to express, but also, you know, what we are allowed to express um, is, you know, um, kept in check by right for instance if you have a society where um as you had and arguably still have where it's okay to be totally racist and totally horrible to people of a different skin color right and that's totally socially acceptable then of course people are going to behave that way right mm. uh, you know some of them are not right but it's going to be an excuse for anyone to let that sort of is going to be cover rather than an excuse, right? It's going to be cover for everyone who has that kind of impulse to let it loose. Uh, so I think to me, that's one of the great, you know, um, powers, I guess, one of the great features of a society, which is that we keep each other in check. That's really the principle of a community. And, and we also encourage each other to do like terribly good things as well, right? I'm not saying it's just like, you know, we are those terrible animals that must be leashed, but there is that component of you have to stop people from doing whatever they want because there's a bunch of people for whom doing whatever they want is horrible, right? Completely. But I mean, when it comes to matriarchies in fiction in particular, what are the sorts of flaws that we see portrayed and are they different to the ones that we see when we're coming up with different sorts of patriarchies or what we see in the real world? I kind of feel like the, the main one I can think of is the one that we were talking earlier, right? The, uh, that it's a simple gender swap uh, and, um, and a huge, uh, you know, yeah, to me, it really is a huge cop-out of like, you know, if the situations were reversed, it would be exactly the same thing in a sort of, it's a very, well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a lack of imagination, right? This inability to see anything as other than, okay, well, it will always be the same. It's just that, uh, 
the dominant uh, the dominant people, the dominant gender will change, but we'll still keep playing by the same rules over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the main the main one that depresses me. <laughs> well, one of the ones that depresses me, although I also enjoy some of the lampooning of it as a trope, is you know the kind of Amazonian warriors where you have lots of these cultures of like all female cultures or things like that. And the women are always massive. And it's like they, they can't imagine women being in power without having that physical superiority or, you know, hmm. there's some kind of, it, it's almost um, a hearkening back to Neanderthals or something like that. It's like these big women who are more ape-like than human or, or there's some sort of BDSM sort of, nods where if it's okay for a woman to be in power it's because she's sexy that way or you know things Uh, like that yeah well it's it's still very much i mean yeah the whole sexy catering to the male gaze still happening is yeah still a huge problem there in fireheart tiger i thought that it was really interesting that you have one explicitly male character which was a eunuch who was called long Um, I wondered why you made the only male character to have a a real role in it um, a eunuch. Was there a a sort of thinking behind that? I only realized after it was pointed out to me that actually the entire cast was female. So I guess we can say no. Um, The, uh, I mean, having uh, eunuchs as court advisors is a kind of um, trope of Vietnamese court drama and Chinese court drama because historically that's what very often happened. Uh, the eunuchs were the only ones who could go everywhere into the the Forbidden City, the imperial enclosure, right? There's a, So there's the one in Beijing, which is the most known, but there was one in Huei, which is called the Purple Forbidden City and which was similarly staffed mostly by eunuchs when it came to administration. Uh, so that was mostly how we got a eunuch um the I wanted to show women being in power, so that is how we got to the Empress. Uh and then everybody else sort of skewed female because I wasn't paying attention. Uh I sort of defaulted everybody who was around to female. I'm sure there are some male guards hanging around who did not actually get a chance to get introduced. Uh I a couple of I mean about three to four years ago when I was writing House of Shattered Wings, um, I thought that, you know, I was having a tremendous success at having a um, female-dominated cast uh, and making space for, you know, um, non-male characters because um, it's been something that's been on my mind how much the genre has left space for male characters and not much... Uh, in the way of, you know, space or role models uh, for other types of characters, especially, you know, for women and non-binary characters. Um, and I sat down and I did a count of how many characters in the book and what their gender was. And actually it was about 50-50, but when male and female, and that brought to mind something that I believe it was Gina Davis who said that um, you start, people start having the feeling that the conversation is being uh, equal when women speak about 17% of the time, 
that's a 17, not a 70. Uh, and uh, they start having the feeling that they're totally dominating the conversation and that it's completely unbalanced when they speak about 33% of the time. Uh, and that certainly was a bit of a, you know, a shock to discover that I'd actually managed to replicate that by having the feeling that I was being very, very, very female dominated and actually not at all. So since then, what I've been trying to do is have a more conscious defaulting or unconscious defaulting towards female characters. I think it's really interesting because actually when I was reading the book, I wondered if it was a deliberate choice to have sort of presented as a matriarchy, but that's potentially because I'm always looking for things like this. But I then wondered if it was men just, and it just happened to be all men in the cast, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that there was anything different about that. It wouldn't have been it wouldn't have occurred to me that someone was trying to make a statement or or say anything mm. particularly different. And I can, you know, I, I could absolutely see that perhaps it just was a coincidence that there was a, a you know, an empress and princess and, and all the, the, the people who happened to be in this very micro story were female. But because we're so not used to seeing that, my mind immediately leapt to, well, this must be a society based on women in power because we just never see that. Yeah. No, I think it's really interesting that, you know, I've, I've read plenty of books where, you know, there's like maybe two women characters having a duel with each other and that's about the sum total of, you know, characters who are not male in the story. And if you're very, very lucky, like, you know, they're not the two love interests of somebody else. Uh, and... I think there's still a bit of a, you know, we're unused to seeing it, therefore it feels like a very remarkable thing. I was just going to say that it was quite interesting what you were saying about dominating dialogue. So I remember seeing a study that someone had done, it was a couple of years back now, of the amount of dialogue within films. And the one that really stuck with me was they did Frozen. And despite it being about two sisters and it sort of being Disney princess, it was still about 50-50 between male and female dialogue. And I was like, wow, if, if you know, the big, big Disney movie that's supposed to be about sisterhood and platonic love rather than true love, and it's still only 50-50, you really got to ask yourself what kind of, yeah. you know, level we're imprinting. And that's at the children's level as well. It's like, no wonder we accept it when we get older if that's what Disney are doing and all the other ones. Yeah, and it's, it's just fascinating how you don't notice it, right? Because I've seen Frozen and it certainly wouldn't have occurred to me before seeing the stats, right? I would have said, oh, it's, you know, it's a movie about sisterhood and they must have a huge role, right? Absolutely. That means they must be talking most of the time and actually not. I mean, I could be, it's been a long time since yeah, I looked at the statistics, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything that you would expect it to be. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember seeing that same study and I think like, yeah, there were, a lot of movies where I was like, ooh, that is not good. And that didn't, you know, where the percentage really didn't match my perception of how much the character should have been talking, right? Based on, I guess, my, you know, mental image of the plot and mental image of, hey, these are those characters doing those things. Well, it was the one that actually came out top that really stuck with me, which was a horror film called The Descent, because it is 
all about women and there's one guy in it at the beginning and he maybe has two or three lines and then he gets killed. And I looked at it and I went, actually, do you know what? For once, horror is right there at the forefront and, you know, showing how it should be done. But that was obviously just a one-off. I mean, you could point to, you know, at least a dozen horror films where it's completely the other way around. <laughs> but bringing it, yeah. bringing it back to um, Fireheart Tiger, I wanted to just come back to the idea of Long because I thought he was so interesting with his relationship with the Empress because all the way through you have Fan trying to influence her mother, trying to find her place in the court. And then you have Long who is there. And you actually have a few moments where the Empress glances at him for a nod or a shake of the head. And I wondered what how this relationship developed and, you know, what you imagined was between them. Because it just fascinated me. You know, it's the only sort of male-female interaction that you saw repeatedly throughout. It was just fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, again, you know, it's a uh, well, it's, it's it's part of the the culture that I grew up with, right? Where you would have those kind of relationships very often in courts. I mean, admittedly, usually it's between an emperor and a eunuch rather than you know an empress, of which there aren't that many, and generally they painted very disfavorably for a number of reasons. Um, but um, I mean, to me, that was very much uh, so one. One, let me put it, that, um, quote unquote, advantage of eunuchs is they did not have family. Uh, and when you're an emperor or an empress, indeed, um, having somebody who does not have, who's just out for themselves, right, rather than on behalf of their clique, uh, made a difference in the advice, right? At least you could be reasonably sure that whatever they were doing, it was for their own personal gain. Um it's, I mean, it gets more complicated because you then have eunuchs having their own protégés and their own, I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of really complicated court politics and very fascinating societies involved and all that. But my idea was simply that these two were, had a ruler-advisor bond that was very strong and that she trusted him and that you know, contrary to what most of the cliches of the eunuchs in court dramas, court dramas are mostly not very kind to eunuchs, um, arguably because they're still written from a Confucian point of view and Confucians they really did not like eunuchs who were kind of like seen as being greedy and against the order of thing, but more importantly, were very unlikely to be Confucians themselves. Um, I thought Long was mostly a decent guy, right? He just was there for the good of the country and sincerely believed that he could advise the empress to the best of his abilities. And they had a really good relationship. No, I really liked it. And I love your point that, of course, eunuchs don't have families. And although you were saying earlier about matriarchy sort of being very strongly child-related, you've kind of gone for that idea of families, but also turned it on its head a little bit in Fireheart Tiger as well. And family is central, but it's it's not quite the family you would expect to see, you know, and the, the power balances and the relationships you would expect to see between women within families. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, at, at heart, it's really a story about two different kinds of abuse. Right. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to super dwell on it because um, it's not really the main topic of this podcast, but um, Than goes from one abusive relation that she has with her mother who is uh, mainly an emotional abusive relationship uh, to a new relationship with Eldris, who's meant to be a savior from that relationship, but it turns out to be, you know, 
uh, well, arguably worse. Well, I mean, okay, maybe not worse, but you know, a different kind of abuse, right? Um, so to me, that was very much part of the storyline in that sense. And having lots of women be around meant that I also didn't feel like I was making a statement that, you know, abuse is an interesting part of all matriarchies, which is not at all what I'm going for here. Right. But, um, I felt it was also important, you know, it was to me a very important theme to have in the book, um, and, to really show, okay, these are all the kinds of relationships that you can have. And of course, Than has a healthier relationship with uh, Yang, um, the fire elemental, than she does with anyone else. And that's, you know, that's also something that's part of it. A more positive role model. Yeah, but I, I, I liked that you had, while obviously her mother is, abusive towards her her mother is also a good ruler in many senses because she would do anything for her people to keep the the country afloat to protect yeah. her her people so i liked that it it didn't just make her you know the equivalent of the mustache twirling evil guy who just is evil because they're evil you know you had you showed that there was something more to her she is not just a villain yeah no no it's a you know it's a a very complex set of characters right uh and there's there's also more to Eldris than just what she displays towards Than right um so you know in in the limited space that I had available because this is a very slim book I tried my best to have this very micro thing with as much complexity to the character as I could because, well, you know, I've never been a big fan of the moustache twirling villain approach to things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do like it in my um, children's cartoons, but that's about it. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I also like that you've got, obviously, a sapphic love story and it's mostly filled with women. Do you think that the kind of matriarchy or just a female-only cast is more palatable with readers who are sold from the beginning a sapphic love story, say, because those kind of readers, a reader who will pick up a story about two women falling in love are going to hopefully be okay with a story pretty much entirely filled with women. Uh, well, I think it's likely, but I think it's also likely that you're going to have people who are fine with, you know, with it as a general principle. But yeah, I think it, you know, if, if you think that, you know, um, you can have a sapphic relationship, then it's very, very likely that you're also pretty much on board with the idea that women can do anything. Um, and I mean, nobody's been complaining about there's a sapphic relationship, but oh my God, those women, they're everywhere, right? I've never, I've, well, I mean, <laughs> It's not been out that long, but I've not had that kind of specific complaint about it. (laughs) Well, that's good. Yeah, I I think I'm ahead there. (laughs) I think you are, because I I think it's still... To have a a matriarchal society or just a story mostly filled with female characters, as you rightly pointed out, it is still something so rare. And it's Mm. really... It's it's frustrating and sad that people get up in arms about it still. 
Meg, uh, Meg jumped in before I could answer or ask her as, um, an interesting question about um, the because you touched on the fact that it was a novella and that you only had a limited um, kind of number of words to work with, um, and I just wondered whether because we another thing we were thinking of is uh, like how to change the default surrounding actually anything like matriarchies, patriarchies, um, you know, non-binary characters, people that we see you know, all too often or not enough of in, in speculative fiction. I was just wondering whether just bringing that from a, a, a down from a broader discussion into talking about something like a, a novella form. I'm not um, a big novella reader and I've only just kind of got into them and I'm beginning to realise that they're fantastic and I've probably been neglecting them and I really love the way that, you know, I've just been reading Empress of Sort and Fortune and I think that's, oh, yeah. it's so clever how it's done. Yeah. Um, I think Zen, Zen Joe described it as an epic in miniature. Yeah. Um, I just think that's incredible and I wondered whether, you know, if we talk, if we're going to be talking about changing the default um, and and looking at new ways of creating societies that that are outside the gender binary or just our general societal kind of assumptions about gender how do you think these shorter forms like novellas um kind of contribute to you know maybe broadening the discussion well i think there's really been um you know there's really been a kind of boom in novellas because of i mean for a number of reasons but one of which is the um the the electronic format right which makes it very easy to easier to have the shorter ones rather than you know printing printing a novella still remains a little complicated in terms of from what i understand you know bottom lines for instance of uh, how many copies you're actually expected to sell um there's i think to me a novella has some of the advantages of a short story which is that you can afford to take risks with it and have some kind of you know for instance, unusual narrative structure that you may not necessarily be in a position to sustain across an entire novel for whatever reason, right? Um, um, you can play with a variety of points of view. You can, you can. I think, you know, it's a sort of very, it's a sort of very good, I would say, compromise between having something that feels meaty enough uh, and that goes shy of actually being a full novel where I feel there's still a whole bunch of expectations that would be applying. I think it's changing, right? You're we're getting to see more and more and more novels which are more diverse in terms of, you know, character well, authors to start with, right? But also characters, plot, setting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But to me novellas are really the the sort of okay, let's experiment form, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I I think it's great. I think there are you know publishers like Tor.com are kind of leading the the way in um, providing um, outlets for authors to to experiment, and then also for readers to discover things that they you know might not. We all know the kind of walking into the bookstore and you see what's on the table, and it's usually George R. R. Martin, along with whatever other enormous quantities of you know. Uh, of the kind of default book that they get in and I say that as a bookseller so it's just um it's really it's really nice to see publishers um you know putting money behind the shorter forms mm. no for sure um and and I mean you know tour.com has been very good about bringing some kind of you know those very experimental but also very diverse uh authors uh on board with uh um, you know, a lot of those novellas. 
not just also the novels, but I think you know that's most visible in novellas because they publish more than they do novels. And you know, full disclosure, you know, I'm published by them, so obviously I'm a little biased there. But you know, <laughs> when it comes to a novella, you it's it's like Alec was saying, you get a sort of a substantial story and a one theme explored. And it's more than a short story, but it's so much more contained and it's it's an idea and it's, it's a definitely a, a valued market. No, definitely. And I mean, you know, and I, we were um, we were talking about uh, Empress of Salt and Fortune. I really like the, the pair of novellas that uh, Givo has put out, right? The, uh, I, I loved Empress, but the one that I really, really, really spoke to my heart was the, the follow-up, When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain which is about, you know, tigers and women and oral history and the way in which um, who gets to write their history and what kind of history it is, depending on who's writing it. Uh, so some of the same themes as uh, Empress of Salt and Fortune, but to me with a sort of more fairy tale bent to it. Uh, so it's kind of like a cross between the the stories that my, my Bangwai, my, um, my, bangwai the, my maternal grandmother, uh, was telling me when I was a child, but in a sort of also more adult and and also very queer, right? Um, yes, I love novellas as well. We wouldn't be here if we we didn't love novellas. Um, but let's get back to matriarchies, shall we? So, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the when we introduce matriarchies into a story. Is there a point where, say, a reader might get turned off if you have a matriarchy and something else very different about a society or world? Like, it, is there, can you get too many different, completely altered versions of a world that sort of alienate readers? Does it become too much? I, I think it's mostly a question of skill, right? And I mean, if you put too many different and new concepts together and there's not enough space for the reader to take it all in, then it gets very confusing. But that, to me, that's more a flow of information problem rather than a concept problem. My take on it is that um, there's also a particular kind of reader who will go like, well, it was too unfamiliar and I couldn't connect with the character. And I'm like, uh, yes, please deal with it because that's overwhelmingly deployed against minorities and anything that looks non-standard. And my opinion on the subject is that, you know, we could deal with like very loving explanations of elf society, right? We can also deal with stuff that is a little more unusual. Um, In, I think, you know, part of the onus is on the writer as a matter of skill and craft, but also part of the onus is on the reader to come to it with enough of an open mind. And if they're not willing to, then at least for me, maybe we're the wrong kind of fit in terms of reader-writer. I completely agree. Though I think it's it's interesting to me when I was thinking about other female, heavy, or matriarchal society books that I've read in recent years. The two that first came to mind were actually written by men, which I found interesting. Um one being uh, R.J. Barker's The Bone Ships, where he's got matriarchal pirates, uh, mm-hmm. which is just fantastic uh, because, you know. Pirates. <laughs> pirates, women, what's not to love? It's great. Um, <laughs> Fair. Uh, <laughs> 
But I also really love um, Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Time. But mm. what I really like about that one is that Adrian just looked at nature. And in nature, we have plenty of examples of societies where women are in power. And so any kind of, you know, sometimes you'll just get this kind of, oh, you know, it's unnatural for women to be in power. Or of, of course, you know, there's the patriarchy because that's just obviously like the natural order of things. Well, no, spiders are matriarchal. So why couldn't, you know, there are yeah. lots of animals who are matriarchal. So it's perfectly plausible for us or especially if we're talking speculative fiction, other beings, whether it's in a fantasy world, a science fiction world, other beings could be matriarchal as well. It's not completely out of the realms of what we understand now. Yeah, no, anytime there's a, like, you know, this is the way it is in nature explanation coming up, I side-eye it a lot. Um, and I'm like, I mean, we do lots of very unnatural things if your definition, if it's in nature, first off, all right? You know, we we die of like contagious diseases. That's very natural, but I'm pretty sure that we don't actually want that to happen um, whenever possible. Um, the and the other thing, obviously, being of the perception of nature, as you were saying, is just completely off, right? There are lots of things happening in nature that are not actually, you know, the patriarchal order. Um, I think it's again, it feels more like cover than an actual statement of fact. I mean, if if men really want me to be natural, I will happily you know, eat their heads off after I've had my way with them. You know, if that's what they want. Fair, fair. <laughs> oh, Megan, not now. <laughs> now, if we're going to get about what we like in fiction and nature, I've always wanted to know what it would look like if you had a book that had men and women that were basically the same as peacocks. Because you look at peacocks, right, and the guys have this most amazing display and they've got this, like, jiggy little dance they do with their feathers and people hunt them for these fantastic feathers and then the female peacocks are just blending nicely into the background watching the guys going, dude, honestly, can't you see that, you know, that human stalking you trying to steal your feather? And I just, I just think that it would be so wonderful to see something like that where it's all about display and it's about really definitely being on the marriage market it's kind of like the reverse of, of Jane Austen really isn't it and you know all the women trying to pretty themselves up it's like no we want I want a fantasy society where you know the men are like peacocks and wandering around just being ridiculously over the top and all the women kind of going oh I quite, I quite like him his feathers are cool <laughs> that would be fun <laughs> you know anything's fun actually the minute you start turning it on its head suddenly things are a whole lot more interesting who'd have thought funny that yeah <laughs> no but i think you know a lot of people have those unconscious i mean everyone has this unconscious bias right but if you if you write with them that's where you start having a problem right because you generally go through like you know um what one of my writing teachers used to refer to as you know the the first shelf or the top of the drawer right which is what just where the cliche live and that's just not terribly interesting because it's not only has it been done before, but you're not really doing it because your heart's in it, right? You're just doing it because you learned it by heart. You're doing it by rote, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Reaching for the default. Um, I've, I've spoken a lot about this personally, like in writing when I was, um, you know, working on the trilogy, which was my kind of like 
suppose it was teething really it was just so many times when I'd just reach for oh it's a god let's make him a man kind of thing and it, it, it I think it just takes a long time it takes a lot not just practice writing it just I mean I think I feel like uh, doing this podcast talking to as many guests as we have um and, and exploring the sorts of subjects that we've covered um you know it's taken that many years to kind of start becoming so you know self-aware on a level of um that you can keep it with you when you're writing it's all very well to sit here and have this discussion and say oh yes we must be more self-aware you know must be uh, aware of defaulting to the default um and and then it's another thing entirely when you're actually sitting on your own creating your world and then physically stopping yourself from from doing the same old thing and falling into the same old pattern and it's quite scary um just how deep this stuff goes yeah like no, no, how it- deeply ingrained it is yeah, no, it's just it's uh, it's a sort of well-worn groove in the mind by now. Mm. I know that you said earlier, Elliot, that you didn't necessarily intend to write so many female characters into it. It's just like what Lucy was saying: you, you reach for a default, and you had female guards, and and so on. So you might not have an answer for this question, but I did wonder if we have a, a matriarchal society where the women are filling all the roles of men, like leader and ship's captain and advisor and things like that what kind of roles do we envisage men having are they the ones who stay at home looking after the children in complete role reversal or are they working side by side with women in areas of power Uh, i think it'd be more interesting if they were working side by side with the women but i i tend to i mean I, I tend to go from the principle that I think re- simple reversal is a bit boring uh, because also it's also saying things about power, right? It's also saying that the only kind of power worth wielding is like the overt political one and a very specific political one because, you know, the, say, the concubine in the court of the emperor who's sleeping with the emperor and having power as a result of that doesn't really count, right? She's just being devious instead of, you know, if you look at it rather coldly, she's being very smart in using the assets that she has uh, as her way to actually access something that is usually forbidden to her. And I'm like, more power to her. But instead, we get slut-shaming and she gets called a whore or other worse names because um, we do not admit that this is a legitimate use of power, right? So to me, I feel it'd be more interesting if we had a kind of side-by-side and some, well, some sets of really good re-examination, I think, of what kind of power one can hold and you know what why are some powers thought more worthy than others um i also think you could have a really good thing going with um aside religious hierarchy to match the temporal power i mean you could do all sorts of things really um if uh, there's I'm mostly going off the top of my head and thinking of existing societies, but I'm sure we, there's more mix and matches that are possible on that front. Or you could, you know, remove them entirely and have a whole new species where there's only females. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And there are there are a few. Again, you have other yep. animals that don't have any men. Um, yep. So it's possible. What's well, a Zaf? I mean, everything's possible. Yeah. Exactly. We should see more out there ideas, I think. <laughs> yeah, if we can't have out there ideas in SFF, where can we have them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about the comments around having men and 
thinking about what men could do and their roles in a matriarchy that would be different. And I think basically tying back into what we had Aliette on to talk about last time with motherhood, I think it's really important that we see more depictions of matriarchal societies or simply women in power who do not have their power weakened or somehow, you know, portrayed as weaker because they have children. And mm. or even having a patriarchal society represented where the man in question, you know, the the king of a grand kingdom is heavily involved in his children's lives by choice, not because he's widowed. And that does not emasculate him in any way. And I think that that would be really, that would be really something that I would like to see a lot of. Yeah. But I feel that we're still, I mean, you know, coming back to the discussion that we had back then, but I feel that we're still in a, you know, at a point where there isn't a whole lot about parenthood and especially motherhood. Right. But, Mm. um, Generally, as you point out, when you know when the father is taking care of his children, it's because the mum's dead. <laughs> it's not because he really likes his children. I mean, I'm sure he really likes the children, but it's not because he really likes the the concrete work of parenting so much that he wants to do it instead of the mum, right? Yeah, it's more like a sort of have no choice. <laughs> the other available party is gone. I think it's really important, especially now with the pandemic, because. You know, all those studies about how this has affected women far more because yep. it has just gone back to that default of women having to look after the children, women doing the homeschool, women doing this and that, and men yep. just carrying on with their day job and, and you know, complaining at the end of the day when... Yeah, they, pretending that nothing's wrong, yeah. Yeah. And I feel, yeah, it's... I feel like it's very much fragilized the gains that we've made in gender towards greater gender equality, right? Yeah. Even though I'm well aware that, you know, that wasn't a perfect situation and that it was exacerbated by the arrival of gender inequality was often exacerbated by the arrival of children, right? But um, having to stay home with the kids in the lockdown kind of seems to have materially changed women. It's things especially for women the worse, right? Yeah, and this is... Again, this is why I just wish that we could see more hopeful representations of different blueprints for a society uh, in in our speculative fiction as kind of something to show the world that, hey, maybe it wouldn't be a terrible, terrible thing. Maybe Aristotle is thousands of years out of date in his view of it, and we should, you know, get, get a different opinion. We definitely should get a different opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so, to wrap us up, Aliette, would you like to give us a little pitch about Fireheart Tiger and why our listeners should go and buy a copy if they haven't already? Uh, sure. Um, so, Fireheart Tiger is a sapphic romantic fantasy uh, set in a universe that's inspired by pre-colonial Vietnam. It's a um, the Goblin Emperor meets Hal's moving castle uh and it's uh it's the story of a quiet and thoughtful princess who's a diplomat and who finds herself unexpectedly meeting her first lover 
across a negotiation table and things get very charged from there. Uh, and she's also being metaphorically and physically haunted by a fire in her past that seems to be following her around. And she will have to make choices about the fate of her country and her own fate. Wonderful. And as we mentioned, it's a great little novella that's out from Tor.com and we all love their books. So uh, you should also check out their other novellas as well. Thank you so much for um, joining us tonight and uh, chatting about matriarchies and novellas and other little uh, segs we've had along the way. (laughs) Thank you very much. It was great. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.